Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Um, we are going to press pause one more week here, and we're going to look at the book of James, chapter 3. So if you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to James, chapter 3. James is just an eminently practical book, and I thought this would be a good section for us to consider um, in the new, heading into the new year. We're all making resolutions and thinking about ways we want to grow. And uh, this is a, a good reminder for all of us, I think. As James writes here, we're going to look specifically at verses t- uh, 3 to verse 12, but I want to read all of it because it's kind of one section. James chapter 3, uh, James writes, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. We're considering just for one message this morning the whole matter of our tongue, our speech. And James the Just, as he was known actually in that day, like a great physician of our soul, is going to give us a thorough tongue examination this morning to see what kind of spiritual condition we are in. Uh, We're going to find out if we're spiritually as well as we think we are, as whole as we believe ourselves to be. We're going to find out if, if we are spiritually weak or divided, if we are spiritually alive. You know, we will, we will sort that out this morning. James is going to be like a doctor, and he's going to look into our mouths, and he's going to make a diagnosis this morning. That's, that's what this text does. And for some, here this morning, Dr. James may deliver some unexpected and difficult news. I remember when I was in college, my sophomore year in college, I went for a physical, just a normal physical, and I haven't done that in a while. I should go, and I, I remember sitting in the doctor's office and they take your blood pressure when you sit down, and my blood pressure was like 190 over 100, and it was really high, and, and the doctor said, oh, I must be a little nervous, so he took it again, and it was just as high, and he took it in my leg, and it was just as high, and and uh, and turns out um, I, uh, I had hypertension, didn't even know it. In fact, I'd probably had it for quite some time, had no idea, so I guess that's why they call it the silent killer, but it caught me by surprise that something was seriously wrong and that I was sick, then I needed some kind of um, medication. And, and that's how it might be for some of you this morning, as James is going to examine our hearts, our tongues. 
that may knock us over with unexpected and difficult news of spiritual sickness or of spiritual weakness that we don't even realize we have. Now, for some, it'll be just like every other doctor's appointment. You go, and they check you out, and everything looks good, and, and, you'll, um, and you go home. But for others, you'll find out that all is not well. And you say, well, how can, how can Dr. James diagnose me with spiritual illness or even more seriously, terminal spiritual illness just by looking at my tongue? How is it possible for him to do that? Well, he can do that because um, the tongue is the window into, into the heart. In fact, Scripture makes that plain in Matthew chapter 12, in verse 33, Jesus, our Lord speaking, says, either make the tree good or its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruits. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. See, our tongues are the window into our spiritual condition. That's what Christ is telling us here, and that's what James is going to point out to us this morning. We have to ask, and we have to ask ourselves, who is truly reigning on the throne of our hearts? Is it Christ and his spirit at work in us, or is it, is it ourselves? Because Jesus says if it's him, if he is on the throne, that that will make a difference in your life. In fact, he says it will make a difference with your speech, with our words. By your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. He says the tree is known. In other words, it's made evident what has gone on in the heart by its fruits. The question each and every one of us needs to ask ourselves as we go through this text is, what does the fruit of my lips say about the condition of my heart? That's the question that's before us. Am I like a good man bringing forth out of my good treasure what is good? Or am I like an evil man bringing forth out of my evil treasure what is evil? That's what the text is driving at. And beloved, if you're not satisfied with the quality of the words that are being distributed from the treasury of, of your heart, then I would invite you to come to Christ. Come to Christ because God's eternally begotten son came to earth and he lived a sinless life. And never once did he utter an evil word in all of his days on earth. And he died upon a cross to pay the penalty for every careless word that you and I so flippantly speak. And he did that to... Uh, out of the graciousness and love of his heart. And because he paid that penalty that we deserved with our sinful speech, and he rose from the grave, as we've been learning in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he has made those who turn to him eternally rich. He has made us eternally rich, not on the basis of good deeds, but on the basis of faith in Christ. The Lord is rich. He is rich, and he does not send beggars away from his house with an empty dish. And I think that's the hope that we have in the gospel. He fills to overflowing the plates of all who come and seek him. And that, that is our joy and that is our, our trust. If you were wise, you would beg yourself spiritually rich. If only you will hold out your withered hand to Christ.
He is the one who says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And so, while this text examines our hearts, and for some may deliver some very troubling news about our spiritual condition, as an ambassador of the king, I'm here this morning to give you good news that your sins can be washed away through the blood of Christ. And not only that, if you've come to Christ, and he is your treasure and possession, but you've stumbled and fallen short in God's righteous standard when it comes to speech, as we all do, I'm here to remind you that the Lord stands ready to forgive. He stands ready to cleanse and to wash us. There is abundant loving kindness ready to cover those things as we turn away from them and confess them for what they are. Grace abounds to walk in heavenly wisdom with your speech as we seek Christ in the things above. And that is James' purpose in our text this morning. That is what I want us to consider as we head into the new year. James' primary purpose and concern is that we would be followers of Christ. That's, that's his primary concern. And even though he doesn't make an explicit gospel call in the book, he does assume and believe that he's writing to Christians, believers, and he wants us to be sure of that. And that's what is kind of filling out the end of chapter 2. And as slaves of Christ, he longs for us to pursue heavenly wisdom with our words, forsaking the wisdom of the world and that which is above. He really wants us to think about our speech in this letter. If you um, were with us when we taught through this several years ago, you know that. But you'll understand that, that it is such a restless evil that he mentions it in every single chapter. He mentions speech in this short little letter. In chapter 1, verse 19, he says, um, you know, bring it, he, brings, he says, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. The end of verse 20, uh, chapter 1 and verse 26, if anyone thinks himself religious and does not bridle, his tongue, he deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. And in verses 15 and 16, If a brother or sister is without clothing in need of daily food, and one of you says with your words, Go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary, what use is that? Kind of empty words are addressed there In chapter 3, of course, what we just saw, and in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, do not speak, or literally, don't slander one another. And again, in chapter 5, and verse 12, he says, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with, uh, or earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no is to be no. So every chapter in this letter addresses, in some way, shape, or form, our words, our speech. And in chapter 3, James really parks out on that and discusses at length the critical matter of guarding our tongues. Proverbs 10, verse 19 says, Where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. And so it goes without saying that those who talk a lot because of their responsibilities or their job, because that's what they do, they have uh, an even greater opportunity to sin with their mouth, and we need to be especially alert to guarding our speech. That's what's in play here in verses 1 and 2. No one can use the tongue for greater good or for greater, greater evil than a teacher of the word of God. 
as a, as a preacher, as a teacher, and therefore those who have that responsibility are addressed individually in these opening two verses. In verse 1, he just gives a simple command. Don't many of you become teachers. James says that in the assembly of God's people, as a rule, not many should be teachers. There's a recognition that teachers are necessary and good and fruitful. There's a recognition that the Spirit imparts that gift of teaching to certain believers for the building up of the body. But it is a clear admonition to all of us that we should give serious consideration to that responsibility if we have it before assuming the job of a teacher of God's word. There were then, just as there are today, many people who looked at the opportunity to be upfront and to teach others in the church with sinful, selfish, and maybe even satanic motivations. And James says all God's people, to all God's people, that they should think it over very soberly before aspiring to such a responsibility. And the reason that we need to be cautious before becoming teachers or stepping into that role is that we will receive a stricter examination. He tells us why. Knowing that such will recur a stricter judgment. With the responsibility of speaking for God, with the responsibility of speaking before others, there's a level of scrutiny and accountability before men, but especially before God, that uh, we have to be willing to accept. He says that we will incur a stricter judgment, not that we are punished more severely than lay people, um, for if we're in Christ, we're not punished at all, but the teachers will be more strictly examined, is the point of verse 1, because of the effect that their speech has, both for good and for bad. So this is a serious matter. It's something we need to take seriously as a teacher or preacher of God's word. But he also gives us a reason that we need to recognize here in verse 2, is uh, why so few should occupy this role of teaching and responsibility. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. He's bringing to the foreground the unique challenge that everyone who teaches the word of God faces, that we all fall short. We all stumble, especially when our words in, in, in relation to our speech. He's just telling it like it is in verse 2. That's, that's what he's saying there. Um, for a teacher, the very tool of our craft is the part of our body that's so mercilessly hard to control. And... Um, and the question that's implied by this is, are you ready for that as a teacher and a preacher? The inevitable falling short is going to happen. Are you prepared for that level of scrutiny by others and by God? And then to further develop his reason, he focuses our attention on the value of controlling our speech by telling us what would happen if we, if we did it absolutely sinlessly. And that's what you see at the end of verse 2. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. He says, if you could carefully control your speech, which is such an unbelievably difficult animal to tame, you could direct every other dimension of your life to its God-appointed destiny. That's the magnitude of the task of controlling our tongues. If you have the self-control, he says, to bridle your speech, you would have the self-control to reign in every aspect of your life. So the words of Solomon are true and, and, and trustworthy. He says, as Proverbs 18, verse 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. We need a biblical perspective on our tongues. 
It's power for good and it's power for evil. It's power to edify and build up and it's power to, to tear down. And so to help us get that perspective, I want us to look at verses 3 to 12 this morning. We're going to see three kind of vivid descriptions of the tongue that I believe will challenge us to pursue heavenly wisdom with our speech as we head into the new year. And the first kind of description, vivid description that he gives in verse, verses 3 to 5 of the tongue is that the tongue is inconspicuously powerful. Our tongues are inconspicuously powerful. Something that's inconspicuous is out of the spotlight. It's not on the face of it clear or visible or remarkable. I remember when we first um, were married and we would go to a, a dim sum restaurant in San Gabriel Valley somewhere, and I would walk in being six foot seven, white. I was not inconspicuous. <laughs> I was very conspicuous. All eyes turn and look. Who is this man? But, but our tongue is inconspicuous. It's powerful, but it's powerful in a below-the-radar kind of way. James gives us three analogies to illustrate this inconspicuous power of our tongues. The first analogy comes in verse 3 itself. He says, now if we put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Very common everyday object scenario to illustrate a spiritual point about the power of our tongues. He's moving from what they would have known to what they maybe didn't know. He's saying, look, in regard to horses, if we put a bit and a bridle into their mouths, we can steer the whole horse. And if it works with horses, which are just unreasoning animals, well, it can certainly do uh, that much more with men. So he's emphasizing that the control of the tongue, which on the face of it is pretty unremarkable, has the ability to influence the whole person, the whole person. And just as a bridle has the power to direct the whole horse, the tongue has the power to direct the whole man. If we do this with such strong animals as horses, a mere touch of the reins to turn a horse and, and to have it go this way or straight or, or that way, you know, if we do this with ourselves, how much more control would we have over our hearts and lives? Verse 4, he gives a second analogy. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they are directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. The picture here is of a large ship being driven and acted upon by strong winds, and yet it is steered by a tiny little rudder. Again, just showing the disproportionate influence of something small, something inconspicuous below the waterline, a rudder, and how that has such a massive effect on a ship being driven by the winds and the waves. So the contrast between the smallness of the rudder and the great size of the ship, again, draws attention, as James is trying to do here, it draws attention to the outside influence that our speech, that our speech bears. It's important to note that when he, what he says there at the end of verse 4, though, he says, um, he says it is directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. And the tongue, we have to understand, our speech is, is not happening apart from us. It's controlled by us. 
Right? We ultimately bear responsibility for what comes out of our mouths, just as the pilot has responsibility for the direction of the ship. The simple analogy just reinforces what James said back in chapter 1 and verses 14 and 15, where he speaks about um, when each one is tempted, he's carried away and enticed by his own lusts. Then when that lust is conceived and given birth to sin, it, when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Our lusts, our desires, they grow and develop in our inner person from our heart, and when they come to term, using the analogy of birth, they give birth to sinful works. This imagery then is consistent with what our Lord said in Matthew 12. Our heart bears the fruit of what's inside of it. We bear full responsibility, full culpability for our words because they're a reflection of our hearts. He gives a third analogy in verse 5. Um, he says, uh, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yes, it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. The picture here is of a small fire that just consumes an entire forest in arid conditions like Palestine in that day or even today, southern Israel. A forest fire almost immediately gets out of control. Anyone who's lived on the West Coast knows just how quickly a fire can get out of control if the conditions are windy and dry. The ranch fire that happened a few years ago in Northern California, it burned 410,000 acres in um, over many, over three or four different counties. It destroyed 280 structures and resulted in a firefighter's death and three firefighter injuries. You might ask yourself, well, what caused such a massive fire? How did this happen? You know, was it an industrial accident? Was it arson? Was it lightning or something like that? Turns out after they did their final report, it was a spark of a hot metal fragment that came from a hammer driving a metal stake into the ground. That's what set off the largest fire at that time, what had been the largest fire in California's history. Indeed, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And James then brings that together in the first part of verse 5. He says, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. So, the common theme in all of these verses, these three analogies, is the effect that a small component wields in it, within a larger system. You have the bit and the bridle, the rudder and the ship, the flame and the forest. His point is this, the tongue is inconspicuously powerful. Our speech is inconspicuously, it's small. Our, 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 our mouth is small. Our speech may seem insignificant, but do not underestimate its capacity, which I think for us is both a warning and an encouragement. It's meant to be both. It's a warning. In other words, we should not underestimate our words' capacity for great evil. We have to understand that ideas have real consequences, and they, as ideas are disseminated and reinforced by certain words, that can be uh, something that causes great evil, but it also, I think, is an encouragement in that we should never underestimate our words' capacity for great good, for building up. 
And in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13, Paul says, Having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, he says, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. In other words, he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about proclaiming the good news and its power to save sinners. Uh, Proverbs 25, verse 11, Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. So our speech can be, uh, is inconspicuously powerful, which is, you know, again, something we need to be extra cautious about, but also encouraged by because we can use our words for good. We need to use the inconspicuous power of our words for Christ's honor, for Christ's glory, and not the pursuit of our own selfish desires. So, so that's really the first kind of vivid description that comes out in the text in verses 3 to 5. But there's a, there's a second description of our tongue that comes out in verses 6 to 8, and it's this. Our tongue are wildly destructive. So he's kind of coming back to the, the, the warning aspect of things. Our tongues are wildly destructive. And he says in verse 6, The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Now he's used this analogy, James has used this analogy of fire to the point uh, to point out, excuse me, that our tongue's outsized influence is incredibly destructive. The imagery then is a metaphor that shows the awful, just massive power of our words. The sinful use of our words represents a very world of wrongdoing among the various parts of our body. So, so essentially what he's saying there, if there's one example of the unrighteous world about us that pops up again and again and again, it is the way we use our speech. And the tongue's destructive power is inescapable. It is comprehensive in the way that it can defile. He says it stains and defiles our whole person. It sets off every aspect of our lives. That's what he means when he says it sets on fire the course of life. Every dimension of our lives is affected in that way. The wrong use of the tongue encompasses every kind of sinful attitude, every kind of sinful action, jealousy, factions, anger, deceit, pride. All of it is affected by our speech and evident by our speech. He says it's being driven and ignited by the very forces of hell itself, referring to Satan and his opposition to God's rule in the world. I mean, that is what animates, animates the, the tongue. So the picture in verse 6 is one of total destruction. And that's what sinful words do. They destroy. They tear down. Proverbs 16, verse 27, Solomon says, A worthless man digs up evil while his words are like scorching fire. Or Isaiah describing the wickedness of man it says, for wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, it even sets the thickets of the forest aflame, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Again, just picking up this imagery of the destructive power of our words and wickedness. In verses 7 and 8, we see how wild and out of control the tongue can be. 
He gives us some explanation. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. James contrasts the unruly nature of our mouths. He, he compares them to wild animals. Man can control pretty much any wild beast, and yet he may not be able to control his own tongue. There's skepticism here. Wild beasts can be tamed, but the tongue, he's not so sure. <laughs> not so sure. Why is he saying this? I mean, we hear what he's saying, but this all seems pretty hopeless, the way he's described it. Uh, you and I can become cynical quickly trying to do what is essentially, what James seems to be saying is impossible. If perfection is the goal and the goal is unattainable, then what are we trying to do and how are we going to do it? And James, I think, is, it's important to understand how James is using, uh, and even the rest of the New Testament uses this word perfection uh, that we see. The term is not used so much to refer to sinlessness, but to refer to maturity, wholeness. That's what the word means. So James here is challenging us, is challenging us to, with these vivid descriptions of the tongue's destructive power, he's saying, press on toward maturity. I mean, that's, that's the heart of the letter, especially, but it's particularly in this section. You know, this is Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Paul says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become whole, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ. I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize. So, so the heart of this exhortation and this confrontation that James has here is, is to challenge us to press on toward maturity in these things. It's about forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what is ahead of us, what is God calls us to. It's about running to win. The tongue is a restless evil. It's full of death-dealing poison. And the Christian who's pressing on in, 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 in mature, toward maturity is striving to bring that destructive power under the Spirit's control on a daily, daily basis. He says, we all stumble in many ways. But maybe next week we stumble a little bit less than the week before. And, and maybe, uh, maybe next year I stumble a little less with my words than I did in the year before that. And situation by situation, day by day, year by year, you know, my life and your life hopefully starts to look more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, so that's the picture here in these verses. It's, it's not hopeless, as, as he says. He's just pointing out it's wildly destructive. And that leads into a third and final description of our tongue in verses 9 to 12. James is going to warn us about the dangers of inconsistency and the importance of pressing on here toward maturity. So if there's, a, if there's one thing that's consistently true about our tongues, according to James, is that they're consistently inconsistent. In other words, uh, we, we, we can't do, we, we are, you, are we consistently not doing what we ought to do? And that's what you see him bring out here in verse 
in verses 9 and 10. Speaking of our speech, with it, with our mouths, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. He points out the same mouth that one minute can be praising God in the assembly of God's people can then in a moment be calling down fire from heaven to consume that same person in judgment. That is the height of inconsistency, right? And and then in verse 11, he adds this rhetorical question to hammer home his point. He says, uh, does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Uh, the obvious answer then is, is no, it cannot. The, the water of a spring is consistent. It's not bringing forth fresh water one minute and contaminated water the next. He goes on in verse 12, Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? Or a vine produce figs? Can salt water produce fresh? This is, a, this is a, an argument from absurdity. It hardly needs explanation. No tree produces two different kinds of fruit in and of itself. Um, The fruit of a tree is consistent. If it's an apple tree, it's going to give you apples. If it's an orange tree, it's going to bring forth oranges. A body of salt water doesn't suddenly turn into fresh water, and vice versa. The, The body of water is consistent. And so his point is simple. The kind of, this kind of inconsistency doesn't happen in nature, and he's essentially saying it shouldn't happen in us. As believers. He says, you don't see fountains or fruit trees or bodies of water bringing forth one thing one minute and something completely opposite the next minute. And in the same way, you shouldn't see, or shall I say, you shouldn't hear that from our mouths as believers. That's why he says very pastorally at the end of verse 10, my brethren, these things ought not to be. James is calling us here to consistency with our tongues. We need to speak consistently. He recognizes that there will be moments of inconsistency, but the true believer who is being led by the Spirit of God and walking in the Spirit of God and not the flesh isn't content to let those inconsistencies be inconsistent. We are pressing on toward maturity. This is the challenge, to tame This is the challenge before us, to tame the untamable, to press on toward maturity with our speech. And apart from Christ, it would be impossible. It would be hopeless. But in Christ, we have grace to be able to do that. It's no secret that gossip and flattery are the respectable sins in the church. There's no question about that. The Christian world is bursting at the seams with juicy tidbits about this church member or that pastor or that celebrity preacher or that church down the road. And as one prominent pastor and author recently wrote, quote, from the pulpit to the pew, from the conference green room to the conference hallways, gossip is rampant. It is whispered in the name of important information and blogged in the name of discernment, both ways of dressing it up in respectable apparel. But if it isn't true, and it isn't edifying, and it isn't necessary, it is gossip. And of course, none of us, including myself, is immune to this, to this rebuke that he's, James is giving us here. We're, we're all guilty of this far, far more than we would ever care to confess. It's amazing to me how 
easily my words can slip into gossip and how slow I am to redirect conversations when those whom I'm speaking with, uh, when the conversation settles into more worthless chatter about fellow brothers or sisters in Christ. And so understanding the inconspicuous power of the tongue, understanding its destructive power, understanding its consistent inconsistency, I thought it'd be fitting for us to purpose together in the new year to take the reins of our talk as believers. Make it your goal to talk to others about the perfections of the Savior rather than the failures of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Make it your goal this year to describe what God has done and is doing, not what Christian leaders or Christian whoever have failed to do. And while at times, it's not to say that there may not be a time and a place to discuss the comings and goings, or even the weaknesses and failures of those around us. There can be a time and a place for that. But a little honest introspection will reveal that most of our conversations about other people are neither edifying nor helpful. They're neither concerned with truth nor are they spoken in love. The vast majority of our conversations and I'm looking at myself in this as well, revolve around those who have stumbled or fallen, those who failed us, and they are speculative at best and can be slanderous at worst. And if we must speak of the shortcomings of others, if we absolutely have to, let's make sure that's carried out within the boundaries of Christian character and that those conversations do not go further than established fact. If there's one area of our lives we need to apply divine wisdom to, not just in our church or any church, is the tongue. Let's take the reins of our talk and pursue heavenly wisdom with our words. Let me give you some final kind of exhortation, some application. First, use your words to edify and comfort others. Let's use our words to edify and comfort others. Ephesians 4 and verse 29 is a, you know, it's a verse many of us know well. But Paul says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, a moment, so that it'll give grace to those who hear. So, you know, we, we need to make our goal that our words are building others up, ministering grace in appropriate context and comforting and encouraging others. That's, that's kind of the first practical takeaway from James 3. Secondly, use your words to proclaim the gospel. Use your words to proclaim the gospel. Isn't that what, I mean, isn't that what Paul says in Romans? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And so he says in verse 17 in Romans 10, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So, you know, we need to use our words to preach Christ, proclaim the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, 11, not 21, 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We do that with our words in, in a gracious way, in a, with, with earnestness, but with um, patience, this is, this is a better way. This is how we walk in the Spirit with our, with our words. 
So use your words to edify and comfort. Secondly, use your words to proclaim the gospel. Third, and finally, use your words to glorify Christ. Use your words to glorify Christ. He says, you know, one minute we bless our Lord and Father, and that's good and right. We should do that. Let's pick up the word, the exhortation of the writer of Hebrews, who says, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, meaning as believers. And then he, he ex, ex, kind of expands on that. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name, Hebrews 13, verse 15. So, so we must use our words to offer up a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving in our hearts. And of course, Psalm 146 is verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. This is the heart of, um, of a, a believer who is walking in the Spirit. Their, mi- their mind is dwelling on what is true and right and praiseworthy, and their lips are bringing forth words that are the overflow of that. So that's it. For, that's what I have for us as we head into the new year. I thought taking a little break from 1 Corinthians, this would be a good one-off thing for us to be reminded of. I know it's been convicting to me, and I hope it's been helpful to you as well. We want to make our speech that which glorifies God, edifies and builds up believers, that leads others into the true, true knowledge of Christ. And as we do that, we will see... Um, the Lord will honor that, and, um, and his church will be established. The unity of the church will be preserved and protected. And we can have, as Paul says, we can, we can walk with a clear conscience, serving God with a clear conscience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for James's reminder here, just a very simple, powerful illustrations that point out that the tongue is so powerful so wildly destructive, so easily manipulated for evil. Lord, help us to guard our, our hearts, and in so doing, be able to guard our lips. I pray that as a church, that if we've fallen short in these things, or we see that where we have stumbled into gossip and slander, or um, just ungodly speech in any way, shape, or form, that we would turn away from that, that we would uh, really purpose in our hearts to edify and comfort others, to, to proclaim the gospel, to speak of what you are doing in us, not what others have failed to do for us. Lord, may we have thankful hearts, because a thankful heart is going to overflow with praise and gratitude and worship. And as we come to, your, to the Lord's table, even now, it is an opportunity for us to proclaim that message of hope that we trust in. Because apart from you, Lord, we have absolutely nothing. We stand no hope before a righteous God. Our words, if we were to answer for every word according to our works, we would be condemned. By our words, we will be justified, and by our words, we will be condemned. And we thank you that you don't evaluate us according to our words, but according to Christ. And so we come to the Lord's table now to be reminded of those things and to reaffirm our commitment to him and our participation in those things. In Christ's name, amen.
Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.